crazy like a fool. What about Lucas? <laughs> She's crazy like a fool. What about Zach? Lucas and Zach. Oh, Lucas and Zach. Pod, pod, podcast. Lucas and Zach. Pod, 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 podcast. Yeah. That went even better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. Um, welcome in, folks. It's the final episode of Lucas <laughs> and Zach. just realized Lucas. how much prep it takes to get these uh, <laughs> songs ready, which is approximately 10 seconds before the show starts. Yeah. Audience, in case you had no, Zach did not know that was a real song. He thought that was a made-up thing for the movie, and not actually um, an actual track from the 70s. Um, welcome into the final episode of Lucas and Zach Movies Month. We are talking the movie that is basically the foundation of our friendship, um, which is, of course, Paddington 2. The all-time highest-rated movie on Rotten Tomatoes that will probably never be beat, if we're being honest, because there's no way another movie gets this rating that high, or is as perfect as Paddington 2. Yeah, nothing as, you know, accessible to everyone, to, you know, mainstream audiences and um, critics, because everyone just wants to... You no know, experience true joy sometimes, so it's hard to hate it. You feel like an asshole if you get this a negative review. Um, I also just want to say I, I like to think that the basis of our relationship is not painted too, but kindness and empathy. But um, you know, you do you. <laughs> I mean, we can you know, Paddington to teach taught us kindness and empathy. So I think that uh, the way it works. Yeah, I mean, I was literally an asshole until 2018. I was the worst person. I watched Paddington Two, and now I, I, I'm a, a kind giver. I give to charity. I help people all because of Paddington Two. None of that's true. I'm still an asshole, but I I'm think still an about I just, being a better person. I just pretend to be a nice person when I talk about Paddington Two. The rest of the time, I like yeah. you know, trip old people and kick babies. I think with paying to two as well as um beautiful day in the neighborhood i'm a good person for like a week after watching it and then i regress back <laughs> in my old ways yeah oh well a week is pretty good though um before we jump deep 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 into a movie we both love um let's do a little last letterbox movie zach what's the last thing you've loved um so i'll be talking probably about a lot of movies that i like really love um because i'm watching as i said um, the previous episode, watching a lot of movies for a different um, podcast or YouTube show. Um, so I watched Men in Black. Uh, this might be one of my fates that is mostly rooted in nostalgia, but I still see it a couple of times as an adult. Yeah, it just rules. Because um, I, I saw it when I was eight years old, which is a perfect age for a movie about um, two cops fighting, you know, aliens and having good, you know, gags and charm and being a smart aleck that's what an eight-year-old wants is that kind of buddy comedy that's appropriate for children um but i think even as an adult to appreciate the world creation they give they they take something you know so um immense which is like all the universes and galaxies and make it so um bottled up in a way because it like brings it all down to just this urban setting they encompass so much um you know mythology all within you know like their little new york couple of blocks um they think it, it's pretty um thrilling in a lot of ways um, but also i just did the first half hour especially it's just like scene after scene of like this is killer this is the best um i think it's just because there's spirits on film um, even with Adam's family, I think it's so good at introducing the characters and introducing you to the world um, and making you like along for the ride that once it gets to the more plot-based stuff, more action-based, you know, after half hour, 
um, you're so involved. So he's just really great at setup uh, because I think, you, you know, you open up with Tommy Lee Jones, um, you know, doing a case and you get the, you know, first retirement, which is good foreshadowing for the end of the movie. Um, and that's all like, oh, I, I kind of understand the movie I'm in for. And then you see, you know, Will Smith chasing down an alien and being exposed to it. And it's an exciting action scene and you get Will Smithness and that's really thrilling. And the, you know, Will Smith gets a lot of great physical comedy moments in there because then he does the interview scene to get in the minute black, which is the funniest segment of the movie. You get him trying to sit in a chair and write without a table and such a little gag in the middle of this movie that he pulls off so well. I just think it holds up really well. I think it's really funny. And I, um, there's not enough like alien adventure movies, I feel like, anymore. I think it died with Men in Black International. Probably won't even try it again. I mean, all the Godzillas are sort of um, alien adventure movies. Yeah. It's one like sci-fi movies that are for like tweens. <laughs> What's the closest example of this? Paul? That uh... it's made R. Is it really hard for pirates? Yeah, Is it's it like really? Seth Rogen wow. doing raunchy jokes. Have you not seen Paul? It's like Seth Rogen it's as an alien. It's about I, be, I, know, I, have, and... I, I have seen it. Um, it's really boring. So that's probably the reason I don't remember a lot of details of it. Um. Yeah, I've never seen Men in Black, which is a, a really weird thing to not have seen. But um, I will second your statement and say that Adam's Family is wonderful, and Adam's Family Values, even better. Those movies... Yeah, Bears Hoffa, pretty good director through the 90s, at least. And, it's actually like all three of the first Men in Blacks. A cinematographer on the first movie we ever covered. Oh, yeah. For big... That's correct, yeah. He's the big cinematographer. Um, I mean, the cinematography is so different than what you see in his other movies. He doesn't have those kind of close-up um, tracking shots. I think he does a lot of Nam's Family and Men in Black. That is kind of a notable. Um, when we do our porn series as well, um, he will be notable. No, will be used as well. Is this a, this a, am I just unaware of an entire part of Barry Sonnenfeld's career? He was like a porn director, a porn cinematographer at the beginning of his career. Was he really? Wow. Yeah. The, I'm they must have like, what he did, but they must have been way more into like the art of the camera back then, because <laughs> because I'm pretty sure the cinematographer now is like a button that starts three cameras and stops them. Um, yeah, that's, that's this is crazy. the cinematographer for the Cohen Brothers. What Cohen Brothers were you saying? Like this is welcome to we Google stuff with Lucas and Zach. <laughs> this has became a kind of consistent segment. It really has, but usually it's me googling stuff and not it, you. It's it's very uh, limited in its, its description of his porn jobs on Wikipedia. It just as he okay. began working on pornographic films, and say what he did. That means he could have been in them. You might be able to see Barry Sonnenfeld's <laughs> schlong and something. Um, I guess he was a cinematographer for like a lot of the '80s, early '90s. Um, Coen's Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, um, When Harry Met Sally, Misery. Like he really solid cinematography career. So he like legitimately earned his chance as a director by doing the cinematography for yeah. like a lot of good stuff in there. Like he was like, Those are here's my movies. That's a lot of good stuff. <laughs> That's not even like he has one thing. Yeah. That's like he has like five or six real quality stuff. And those Cohen movies always look really good. Yeah, it's quality. And Harry Sally looks good. Like they kept. Oh yeah, absolutely. Save New York. That's what one of the things people know most about the movie without realizing it is how City of New York is shot in that film. Yeah, I wonder if Sonnenfeld really likes New York, and uh, he has an he has an eye for it. Um, my last movie 
is uh, since we did our review of Godzilla vs. Kong, I've gotten sort of interested in uh, King Kong movies. So I went back and I was going to watch them all. And I rewatched uh, the original 1933 King Kong, which is interesting. Um, it has some really great animatronics. Uh, the model's really cool. All the stuff with the Kong and the animals is really interesting. Kind of lacks the, the emotional connection you like in later versions of this, where you kind of understand um, on an emotional level why Kong is doing this stuff, which is kind of the interesting thing about Kong versus the other creatures is because you have an ape as your your big monster, there is a, he's more human-like than most other monsters, and thus you can have some like more emotional moments and kind of understand what is behind those eyes. Um, it has the problems of 1930s movies. The people on the island are like a racist stereotype. It's it's not great. But also like it's one of these things that I always I struggle when you watch old movies is like you have to acknowledge that it's 1933. I don't think they necessarily did it. It's always interesting because like you get stuck in this position where you're forced to make a, a judgment about whether this choice by the filmmaker was malicious or not. I don't think it was malicious. It just feels ignorant because it's 1933 and no one was holding them to a standard where they had to not do this. Um, there's also, uh, they have a brontosaurus eat somebody. Um, I don't know if you guys know this. A brontosaurus is a herbivore that they don't eat people. Um, so your movie is kind of inaccurate dinosaurs wise, which is, you know, obviously a massive flaw, but you know, good movie, enjoyable, um, better than the two recent Kongs we've gotten. But, uh, yeah, it's always interesting trying to figure out like how much you want to criticize a movie for being super dated because of its time. I haven't seen it. I feel like I'll probably be into it just cause I like the older, you know, atmosphere and I, I appreciate how the effects were done. Um, oh, I think you will from that perspective. early in time. That, uh, that yeah. Said so, um, we talked about this off camera before, but my my first experience with King Kong, a lot of my knowledge is just based on the ride at Universal. Um, it's about Jaws um, for a long time, so I, I feel like maybe I should experience what the actual movie is like. Um, I, I I can almost guarantee you I like it better than any other King Kong movie I've seen. But who knows? How many King Kong movies have you seen? Um, the recent ones in the Peter Jackson one. I like the Peter Jackson one quite a bit. I do too. It's too long. Yeah. That's the big problem. Yeah. It is really funny though if you go back and the original version is like an hour and 40 minutes and then the Peter Jackson version is like three and a half hours and there's not really that – it's not really that much difference in terms of the actual plot that's being laid out. Peter Jackson just was just like, I am now going to do – I mean, most of it is just like the action scenes are so much longer, which to be fair, the action scenes in the Peter Jack and King Kong are awesome, especially the scene where he fights the two like T-Rexes. Um, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. so that is we, King Kong. We just need to stop bringing King Kong to Earth and just let him fight dinosaurs. I think that's well, he's on enough. Skull Island. That's where he fights. I feel like Skull Island is is a better version of what King Kong should be. That's the best part of... The new one is where there are hollow earth slash skull island, but when you bring yeah. them into seas into waters into any kind of industrial looking setting, the contrast is just unenjoyable. And well, because you get to basically when he's on Skull Island, you get to be like, look at a giant ape in the dinosaur period with humans. Like it gives you so many more options and things to play around. You can do crazy monsters, and then you get into a city and you're like, Yep, this is Tokyo. There are buildings. There are a bunch of people. Like, there's, there's just a lot less interesting stuff you can do when you get in any kind of um, normal environment. 
And also, you know what's cool? Dinosaurs. You know what's not cool? Fucking military. I don't need them to fight jets and <laughs> tanks. I'd rather them fight a brontosaurus, even if that brontosaurus is eating meat. It is really funny, though, that, like, over time, the, the creatures in these movies have become more and more impervious to human weapons. Like, in the current, you know, MonsterVerse, basically, you can shoot a nuclear missile at one of these things, and they'll be fine. And then you go back to, like, the original, and, like, you know, you're like people are shooting people, shooting animals with rifles and killing them, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's like they're an animal and not made of metal. It is almost like, yes, a dinosaur <laughs> is huge, but if you shot it between the eyes with a gun, it it's, would probably still die. It still has skin and body parts that make it able to be alive. Yeah, you know, Kong just got bigger. He didn't like get metal skin or something. Yeah. Just really thick, just like this thick of skin. He is a really thick gorilla, though. So, like you know, congratulations to thick, all thick gorillas out yeah. there. That little chunky monkey. He's not <laughs> a monkey, but for the sake of the joke, we're gonna call him a monkey. Do you think that that Ben and Jerry should have released specialty edition chunky monkeys <laughs> chunky with Kong's head on top? Yeah, uh, and and they can do like something with fish food to make it for Godzilla. I think Ben Jerry's license your shit out. Okay, you're you're at this point you're novel anyway. Your your names are always novel. You do license out like Colbert. You need some Godzilla ice cream. Give me that shit. It is funny how like the that. only product placement they've ever done is like Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> it's just funny. Um, yeah, that's King Kong. Let's talk about Paddington 2. The greatest movie of all time. Maybe. Zach Ford, why don't you give us the plot summary of Paddington 2? Um, so there's this bear. It's real cute. He wears a red hat. He wears a blue coat. And he has brown fur. Um, you have a little bit of a flashback to, you know, him living his life with his, um, you know, aunt and uncle, kind of adoptive parents. Um Back in, why am I forgetting what country? I wanted to say Panama, but that is not correct. It's like Borneo. Peru, darkest Peru. Oh, Peru. Peru. Yeah, oh, of course. Yes, darkest Peru. Um, so in Peru, um, and, and, you know, they express, expressing, you know, how much you wanted to see, you know, England. And then we fast forward to where Paddington now lives in England with the Browns. Um, lovely family, great family. I might um, get rid of my family and just keep looking for new <laughs> wives and children until they're like <laughs> the Browns. I think I'm the one these like it. So I think Sarah should just find a Mr. Brown, leaving me in the dust. That's what, what Theo deserves. Um <laughs> So the painting is living with um, the Browns. They get an update on where their life is. Um, Painting, you know, lovable little guy, also just like a real fucking klutz. Um, and, you know, he all everybody around the town learns to love him for his, you know, his kindness and his just sincerity and how he treats everyone. And they kind of learn around him. But also, like, he fucks up someone's haircut and he um, pisses off one of the other neighbors that thinks you should and have bears in the street, which, you know, makes sense. Is, is he being treated unfairly? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but in, he gets involved and in, or not really frames, but uh, incidentally frames um, for the theft of a book, a pop-up book that he wanted to buy for his aunt to, so she could see London. Um, and he goes to prison. And it turns out, Paddington 2 all along, the best way to make a sequel to Paddington is make it a prison break movie. This may be, <laughs> I, I wanted to do prison month to be sure to put this into that. Um, and he teaches the prisoners um, what it means to, um, you know, have friendship um, and kindness and marmalade. Um, 
and and hijinks ensue and Hugh Grant's in it and I didn't mention his name at all but I'm sure we'll talk about him a lot there's trains I don't know it's a great movie there's pink suits um Brendan Gleeson's name is Knuckles and he says his name a few times and gets scared by a bear stare and it's all great it is really um Whew, where to begin? There's so many places. Let's start at the beginning of the story. I think that um, one thing that's so impressive about Paddington 2 is the visual storytelling that gets called back to. So the first sequence we see Paddington in the present day, he's leaving his house. He's bringing a sandwich to somebody whose bike he rides on. He's helping a guy not get locked out of his house by leaving his keys inside. You know, he's bringing people together. He's helping someone study for his test. He's like doing all this really wonderful stuff throughout the entire film. And so that when he has to go to prison later, they come back to that moment and watch how everyone's life is just slightly worse off without Paddington in it. It's just it's just wonderful storytelling. Like Paul yeah. King is a legitimate genius. Yeah, we, we'll talk about Paul King a lot and why the direction of this film is what elevates above the actual or the other uh, kids movies of the you know, similar light. Um, but I do want to say you connected to my main takeaway on this watch, which has to do with us just talking about It's a Wonderful Life. But I think there's so much connectivity to It's a Wonderful Life. Maybe that's why we're drawn to those movies. And I think especially thematically. But you said with, we get to witness what life is like without Paddington. You know, Paddington starts to doubt his own you know, value in the community. You know, he gets arrested. The one guy really doesn't want him. Um, he messes up the haircut. He feels like a fuck up. Uh, he's literally in prison. He really misses home um, or misses Peru. But he's really starting to lose his sense of place in that community. Um, just like um, Bailey um, starts to feel like he never found his, lost his identity and place in um, that town. And But by the end and by that scene, people realize what life was like without him. Paddington realizes the value they have and everyone's able to come um in the end come back to do something great for for you know their for their hero um the ending of Paddington 2 of the wall coming together to buy a plane ticket for his aunt to come from peru which is like one of the loveliest scenes ever it has so much parallel um structure to everyone coming back and giving money um at the end of it's a wonderful life and, and seeing all your characters together i think just that community building especially that's what you were kind of heading at is that you see how he interacts with everyone in this town you get to know each little character he sees um and and, and understand enough about um the character even though they have one minute screen time which is such a thing that i said it's a wonderful life i think spawned into mm -hmm. many movies and many shows about small towns so Paddington, i think is probably the most successful to kind of use that community building off of that absolutely and two points one another connection between the two films is i cry at the end of both of them like i was weeping yeah. at the end but lucy it's one of the most just purely beautiful moments of kindness being paid off and like he's he's so happy he's happy that he got out and then he's so sad because he didn't get his aunt like a, a birthday present which in the scheme of things, it's not a huge deal, but he is such a purely wonderful person that the idea of his aunt not thinking he cared about her birthday yeah. is so painful to him. And then just getting to open the door and everyone had all done this for him, you know, while he was sick. And it's just, it's such a beautiful moment. And it's like, it, it, it's it kind of, it's almost like restores your faith in humanity. You're like, this is what we should be like as people, because this mm -hmm. is just, just pure wonder and like pure care for another human being. 
at absolutely no you're not they don't these people don't get anything out of bringing out lucy there beyond watching patterson be happy and that's just like yeah. a purely joyful moment that is it's unbelievably to watch yeah the circle of giving and kindness and and something just to express how effective that ending is is i watch you know movies and fragments very often because that's just what my life um gives me sometimes so i had to stop painting with 10 minutes left in the movie and i watched it hours later the last 10 minutes so i basically watched the final scene isolated from the rest of the movie and still like sparked two tears um just like i feel like i can watch only that scene in a year from now and i i think um you even though the rest of the story definitely adds to it but i think they were able to generate such a microcosm of a story just in that scene. Um, you can understand the emotions without anything else, which I think is what Paul King is super effective. I think he in every scene kind of could be a story of its own or a little short form of its own. He makes every scene matter um, in a way that's effective. And every, every scene has a reward in a way. Yeah, he's also just such a good show don't tell storyteller. He doesn't tell us that everybody loves Paddington and he's an integral part of the community. He shows us this in this like two minute sequence or like 90 second sequence at the beginning of the film that shows you how important it is for him. Yeah, um, even Paddington, the way Paddington talks about other characters that allows you to get caught up on where the Browns are from the first film to the second film is just filled with such love and such care for them. Like, you know, the kids are kind of doing goofy stuff and like he could be more judgmental, but that's just not who Paddington is. Like yeah. there's just there's this joy, there's this, this happiness and this joy to like, oh, you know, he's cast to be called J Dog, and now he's like he never talks about steam trains, but it's like it's it's almost like, oh, I wish he didn't have didn't think he had to do that. But like there's just such happiness, and then even the Mr. Brown stuff where he's being like having like a weird midlife crisis and it's it's simultaneously like such an expression of how much Paddington cares about these people, and also just a really funny reintroduction to all these characters. They're just they're just doing such goofy stuff, but also like incredibly charming goofy stuff. Yeah, and and, and they and, uh, every goofy thing they introduce with the characters has a payoff and ending. They have their little mini arts. Um, you know, the son who too cool for trains, he needs to act out. Um, at the end, starts to embrace trains, and it plays into the plot. Um, very purposefully. Yeah. Um, you know, the mom wants to swim the channel and you see her practicing it and, you know, she gets to overcome that by the end, they just say at the end, but everyone has their, their full arc. Uh, that they're able to fulfill that for having Paddington in their lives. I want to say Paddington's most noble quality probably is he just is an emblem of acceptance. Like everyone he comes to, he accepts who they are. He believes there's a positive side. Everyone, ha he has the best intentions. He can be the best they can. That's why putting him in prison is such a good idea. And you're not led to believe that these are like truly good guys. They're all like, did commit their crimes and you don't know what they did. Like Knuckles probably murdered someone, right? There's definitely, <laughs> there's the insinuation that he is like good a with knives for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> like they're definitely not great people, but Paddington still treats them with as much kindness as he would anybody else without any judgment you know as you you have said um which is remarkable and i think that's what sets them apart from peter bailey in a way peter bailey still you know judges potter or peter bailey fucking george um, george bailey thank you george bailey um peter bailey is a like, character though it makes you feel better okay <laughs> george his bailey is dead thank you george bailey you know still they we have an enemy to 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 
fear of, which is Potter and there's other people that he could that he, he definitely thinks down on and are not positive people. Paddington, if you think even Hugh Grant's character, Paddington probably like has some level of forgiveness for and some understanding. Just has out of work acting. And the movie does too. It gives him a little bit of a reward at the end with him being able to like find his true calling performing stage plays in the end. So I, I think this movie just understands that everyone has positive qualities that can come to light um that they exhibit through how Panton treats everyone. Yeah, if only villain, we could be like that. Yeah. Even the villain is hysterical. Everything he does in this film is so funny. The idea of taking Hugh Grant, who is an actor that we have like a long history with, casting this movie as an out-of-work actor who's struggling and is doing dog food commercials and not only doing dog food commercials, doing dog food commercials sitting like a person in a chair just in a diet dog costume eating dog food with like a fork is just hysterical and then the fact that he gets into so many different costumes and he's always mm -hmm. doing different voices at all times and just even like the weird like things of his character the fact that when he's in the stand about to send Patty, like he gets asked to you will you say the truth and the whole truth and the truth that have to god and he has this whole like ridiculous monologue about how <laughs> It's totally he's just an extreme narcissist that wants money. Like he's really not that villainous. He trained Panther, which is the worst thing. He let him go to prison. But otherwise, he's just a, a psycho that's doing weird stunts to get to treasure. Um, I will say my favorite, like addition to his characterization, a line that dropped. I think I just missed every other time watching it is when uh, the two kids are trying to talk to his like agent, um, to you know, con him in a napping in um, the house so they can uncover some stuff. Um, but when she's just like, why they're like, why does he like not work anymore? And she's like, oh, he just like refuses to act with anybody. Like it wasn't like they didn't want him. He just like everyone fucked with his acting. He was too good for everyone else. So he would only perform by himself. Yeah, he's <laughs> like one man talent. shows. One man shows only or he plays every character. They dilute his talent, yes. So it, it, a pretty, pretty solid reason for why you can't have a career because you refuse to have anyone perform a scene with you. It's a great bet. I love it's the like bit, extreme uh, narcissism. I love the bit about the 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 hand drawing of Pad the guy that got away from Paddington, and the fact that he keeps saying things about how attractive the guy is. <laughs> like he's yeah, in jail. Like, the, the, the like cop at the church. <laughs> He showed well. Not even that. It's the it's the in the the sketch of um, yeah. The the guy the, the the like the the hobo that gets away when and then Paddington gets framed. Oh yeah. And he's yeah. in court testifying against Paddington, and the picture like this black and white charcoal drawing looks terrible. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's really handsome. He's gonna look to him. And then even later, he's talking about his like beautiful blue eyes. And Mrs. Brown has to go. The pictures. There's no color in the picture. All right. Because they play into this a lot too, because that's with the the cop of the church is like the most beautiful nun I've ever seen. So you're led to believe that Hugh Grant might be just really attractive to everyone around him, um, in every sketch. But I do love the bit that the sketches are like so perfect and intricate, based on just details that they told this girl. She has this immaculate um, skill of of prison or crime sketches. Yeah, it's like literally, it's every picture is just Hugh Grant <laughs> with a beard, detail. Hugh Grant with a nun's costume, Hugh Grant with a helmet. That's oh, a great so visual um, use too, is when um, they, um, what's her name? Sally Hawkins' character, uh, Mrs. Brown, we're going to call yeah. her. Um, when, when she comes to the awareness of that it is Hugh Grant's character all along, they do a quick flash of every illustration, like goes real fast Such to connect to his role. face, and it's a really good image.
Well, it's such a great moment because you as the audience know that it's him. And mm -hmm. you're, as the audience are sitting here going, come on, look at these pictures. It's so clearly him. Come on, get to it. And then that moment is such a perfect payoff of this this feeling you've had for 20 minutes of being like, how on earth have you not figured this out? It's so clearly him. It looks exactly like him in every picture. But then the way they do it, it's just, it's brilliant. It's wonderful. Yeah, because it could be so obvious. And so it's like, oh, of course, you know this. But because they do it in such a creative fashion, her light bulb moment is visualized so creatively. Um, it makes that and still engaged where we could have just said, like, let's move on. But they're also just so self-aware about the fact that it is obvious. Like they never for a second try to pretend yeah. that it's not him. Like they never try to trick you. They're they're clearly – they're like, look, it's, it's yeah. obviously him. How are people not getting this? But it's also sort of a joke because everyone is just kind of like you – know, it's the classic like everyone's oblivious to the person in their midst. Why would they think it's him? He, there's no reason to think it's him. So he just <laughs> kind of – you just kind of miss him. And the only person that would have thought it was him is the only person that, for some reason, has disdain factors. Because that's another thing, is they, they treat him with such a high regard, for the most part. The judge says, like, the noble profession of the actor at the end. How dare you shame the noble profession? But but Julie Walters, as Mrs. Bird, is the only one that just, like, hates actors. And just that's, like, her whole bet, the whole movie, is, of course it's him. All actors are liars. Uh, this movie so, is just so the fact that, <laughs> so good. funny. It's no, it's but, a great but bit. That, that's the reason why, in a way, they, they say he can get away with it because they treat him like he's a king. Like, how could an actor ever do such a horrible thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And, like, she hates him because he can never remember her name until the end of the film. <laughs> just, just a great bit. Um, this movie is full of, like, all the best British actors, like, the best character actors. It's so much fun. Um, the, they just get the best people to be in this. Hugh Bonneville and Sally Hawkins as the parents are just wonderful. Like the fact yeah. that Sally Hawkins gets like Oscar nominated and then goes back to play the mom in a Paddington movie is just it's, it's still great because it can just be like a passive performance, but she has like the right level of quirk and like positivity that can match oh, with yeah. Paddington. She's almost the closest as a human to Paddington of any of the human characters. Um, and that comparison works really well. Um, and then Hugh Bonneville is hysterical in both these films, the first one and this one. I love the attempt in both films to be like, there used to be a cooler version of this very dorky, like very proper British gentleman. And it's, and you know, last one, it's like he drove up to the hospital. When we watched this scene first, in the first one, the flashback scene is Mrs. Bird telling her, the kids, that her dad used to be cool. Their dad used to be cool. And the, the flashback is him driving up to the hospital with Sally Hawkins when she's pregnant on a motorcycle. And like, this will never change. He's got a crazy mustache and everything. And then they walk out the door after having the kid. And he's got like a brown sedan. And he's yelling at people to stay away from them because the baby can't handle pollen. <laughs> it's just a great moment. And in this one, the fact that the cool version of Hugh Bonneville was... Um, set to the song Daddy Cool and it's him throwing balls at coconuts. This is a kind of off topic, but this always reminds me of one of my favorite stories from a friend. Um, his dad is like very, you know, suburban Ohio. Um, just looks like such a dad in a lot of ways, but supposedly he has had his daddy cool moment in the 70s where he was just like riding motorcycles and um, wearing leather jackets. I had long hair and, and supposedly uh he like picked up um why am I like Carol Carol Shelley, um the big bird actor <laughs> on the side <laughs> of the road who was hitchhiking and smoked pop and big bird and that's his daddy cool moment. 
<laughs> and that's all I ever think of. Like, uh, uh, Mr. Brown definitely did pot with some puppeteer. Like, I, I, I just thought we did. I mean, I think he, he did he's pot. Clearly, I'm a cool, I'm a daddy cool myself. He was clearly blazing it up back when he had that great mustache <laughs> and the hair and stuff. I mean, it's a it's oh, so he could good. only throw the baseball that accurately because he did a shitload of coke before that throw. But it's also just such a great look. Like the fact that they that they are so detailed and focused on making the look funny for like a 20 second bit in your movie is the flashback to him and he's got the mustache and he's got the headband and it's like the whole costume just works and you just, you still just laugh instantly. Years old. But that's what makes it funny because it was so clear that he was ne- he it's so clear that Hugh Bonneville was never cool. So they put him in costumes to try to make him look cool, but he still just looks like talking about. What did you see? I saw him hit every single one of those pins with that ball. That guy. It was pretty impressive. I'm not gonna lie. Fucking cool. (laughs) Oh man. And then we talked about Hugh Grant. Um, Brendan Gleason plays Knuckles. Knuckles with a capital N. My favorite thing. I need painted or I need Brendan Gleason to pop up in. I do need painted pop up in every movie as well. Brendan Brendan Gleason when he wants to have fun. Everyone in this movie gets the tone so perfectly, but I think the contrast of Brendan Gleeson, what you're used to him, that you can see him, um, you know, as this rough Irish guy in a crime movie. I mean, he did all the um, like Calvary and the Guard, um, and then Bruce. All what are those brothers' names? Why am I blinking on them? Um, oh, McDonough. McDonough. Yeah, he does all the McDonough movies. Um, so you kind of see him as this rough, you know, Irish rogue, which is he's playing that character. You take the character from in Bruges in a way, except he's a, you know, a, a patron of the arts in Bruges. But you take that character and you put him in prison, and this is who you get. You can throw him right into the Paddington movie. Um, so I think that's why it's lovely, is they didn't take an actor to play something completely contrasting what they usually are. He, they're playing their normal role, but just putting Paddington next to him. Uh, and it, it's lovely. Um, and, and you know, he gets some great jokes as well. Just the name Knuckles um, is wonderful. And, and just the slow roll to his acceptance for Paddington. Like he's what everyone fears in this prison. They're like, this bear is going to get his ass kicked. So he's going to go up and critique the cooking of Brendan Gleeson. Um, but, but you know, Paddington's just general unassumingness um, going up to him and just being sincere with what he wants to say and, and sincere with his interactions. Um, like pretty quickly breaks down Brendan Gleeson. It's really the him eating the marmalade and learning how, how delicious it is and what, what they could be making. But um, it's still that the relationship is super believable even in like a five second uh, adjustment. It shouldn't come off as sincere as it does. Um, but Brendan Gleeson can really switch that gruffness and that warmness very very quickly that i think is you know magical i mean, I think literally every second he's on screen is perfect like the first time he yeah. walks in he's this huge towering guy paddington walks up to him he's ready to talk about the series make him cute it's such a good it's yeah. a really good like perspective like the classic like gandalf and the lord of the rings thing um and then he accidentally squirts ketchup on his thing, and then he tries to rub it off, and then he squirts mustard on because he thinks that's going to get it off, and then he whacks him in the head with a baguette. And then there's just a great moment when he starts talking and he cracks the rolling pin in half, and he goes, "No one questions my food. No one sprays, can- and no one whacks me in the head with a baguette." And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just <laughs> pronunciation of baguette is perfect. <laughs> that's great. Then he grabs Paddington and yells at him, and the marmalade sandwich ends it lands in his mouth. 
And, you know, he, he eats and he goes, what was that? And Penning goes, marmalade. And he goes, marmalade. And then there's the way he says marmalade the first time yeah. is hysterical. And then they, then he's like, all right, fine. And then he tells the entire group, this bear is under my protection. <laughs> and using him for the hard stare moment, they, they have to have a hard stare. That's a, oh, it's a so Paddington good. thing. And, and using it in the middle of them learning how to cook and him not being any help in the kitchen. Um, and that, that being what can fully you know make that connection, make him be part of their partnership, their cooking partnership of Paddington coming off as a tough one. After talking about Brendan Gleeson's like good knives. And like definitely murdered at least ten people. He might have been a mob enforcer, and for him to you know be broken down by just being stared at by a bear, um, one is super funny. But 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 two once again works into the themes of the movie because it's just that you know sincerity of your interactions and and what you want and the like because in the bear stare you know it's supposed to be like intense and scary it's also just like uh i expect of you it's like a stern discipline it's like saying i'm disappointed in you it's so good <laughs> and so, so yeah it's wonderful but brendan gleason i don't feel like we talk about this enough but brendan gleason is legit one of my favorite actors like if i had to make top 10 actors he could be one of my top 10 of all time um so wow. putting him into a, a Paddington movie is just ideal it's just that's Honestly, why I often say Brendan Gleeson is my favorite performance over um, Hugh Grant in this, which is often seen as, you know, a wrong take. But I think a lot of it is just based on my own personal affection for Brendan Gleeson as an actor. I'm just bound to love his, his performance more. I mean, I'll agree with you. Brendan Gleeson is my favorite performance in this film. Okay. Um, I don't know if I love Gleeson as much as you, but he's certainly in the class of actors where I will never be unhappy to see him show up in a film, even if it's for like, he randomly walks in as the police officer or something like he's just one of those people yeah. that you'll always enjoy. Um, the heart stare scene is just amazing because Paddington, he calls Aunt Lucy, he insults Aunt Lucy, and then Paddington gives him the heart stare. And his response to it, he's like, what's going on? Why is it so hot in here? Did somebody leave the oven? Like, his, like the, the progression to this is just so good. And then, um, but even just like the response to him and Paddington, you know, comes and he's like, no singing. No humming, no, because he's walking around doing one juicy or, and he puts on the he puts on the apron and he takes the hat and then he blows it up with his nose, which is a good moment. He's just an actor that's always game for whatever he is in for. He he just gets the tone of what the director wants. I'm pretty well. That's why he fits so perfectly in the Harry Potter universe. I think him as Matt Damon oh, is awesome. perfection, um, and that's why he does so well with McDonald, which is you know a more you know you know acid take on a kind of gangster movie um, so funny both mcdonald's yeah in the garden um as well he really gets that kind of dark humor he can just switch it to whatever is needed of him um anytime that's why he's great he fits in art films he fits in genre films crime films he fits in family film perfectly he's just got a he's got like he's got the great look he's got a great voice he kind of just has everything you want out of a character actor. You're just like, yeah, that guy just – he just has something about him. You just enjoy him in every scene. Um, there's so many good moments in this kitchen scene. The knife introduction, we've talked about this before, where he's like, you know, Paddington's like, Aunt Lucy always said, be really careful with the knives. And he's just really good at it. And he's like, how do you know? And he goes, you don't want to know. <laughs> and then they, they make it. And then um, they serve it. And he's really nervous. They won't like it. And he's in the kitchen. And there's a really funny moment that I'm pretty sure is left in. It was an error that they left in. Is when he's cleaning the pans and he's jamming them back into the holder. And he jams one of them too hard and it falls out. While he's saying, oh, my dad always told me I'd be nothing. I think that was probably a mistake. Like, I don't think it's meant to, to bounce back out and smack him on the leg. But it's just really, really unintentionally funny. Um, 
Oh, just everything about that scene where he's so scared that they won't like his marmalade sandwiches. It's just like watching this guy go from being like breaking a rolling pin in half to being concerned they won't like yeah. the marmalade sandwiches. It's just so good. Marmalade's almost like the drug that painters pass it around to get prison to accept them because it goes to one person and he builds a relationship with Gleason, but then it's a really quick way to get the whole prison to accept them is they all eat, you know, his marmalade drug at this at the same point and it all breaks them down and kind of brings them back to their childhood nostalgia of the recipes they grew up with, all the sweet things that their grandparents and parents have made for them. It's a super sweet moment. And and once again, the magic of this movie, it, it, the understanding that everybody has you know had full lives and has positive lights and has memories and has things they like and enjoy and vulnerabilities um that these are all hard-worn prisoners and criminals but they all you know have had memories of these lovely things they ate as kids and they can get make them have soft moments um i mean it's a stylized kids movie but it still you know connects to the real life in a way that makes me feel warm that make me remember that I should not give people a hard time because they act like an asshole, that they still have the same soft spots that I also have. Yeah, it's such a good scene because, like, the just the introduction of, like, well, Paddington and, and Knuckles made marmalade for everyone, and then you get the other prisoners like, I can make this, and I can make that, and then you just watch over time the prison turns into it, and they've got flowers growing in boxes along the railings and all the table. They've taken out the long tables, and they put in little, like, you know, tea parlor tables, and they're serving, you know, different sweets, and he's, you know, it's just, like, a wonderful um, statement about what the the presence of Paddington can do. And this all goes, one of the things that they do so well early on to make the prison with Paddington seem different is it's a jokey moment, but when he accidentally throws the red sock into the washing machines and turns yeah. all the, the gray and white prison uniforms into pink and gray uniforms, it's just yeah. it's such a, I don't know whose idea that was, but it's so brilliant because from then on, it adds this lightheartedness to prison. Like initially prison seems really dark because it's like dark and it's raining and everyone's wearing it and everyone looks unhappy. But the fact that he then dyes them all um, pink is not only a reason for the other prisoners to be annoyed at him, but also just makes them all look hysterical. They cast the other prisoners so well. They just have like such a unique look. Like you've seen them in other stuff. Noah Taylor's one of the guys. He always plays like kind of a bad guy. They've got, all, they've got like really great at like, they look like gruff, hardened criminals, but then they happen to be wearing pink uniforms and eating marmalade sandwiches. Um, and uh, it just like, the, the combination is just great. Um, the prisoners also um, are a collection of um, Lucas and Zach podcast um, favorites because um, yes. we have. I'm going to mess up with some of the names, but we have um, from Eurovision. Um, I lost his name, Jamie Dimitru, who plays uh, the like coordinator for the performances in Eurovision. Um, oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, he has a great moment. Um, and he has a great line where he says, hey, I didn't make anything great, but like this guy makes a great apple cobbler or something. And the guy he talks to is who I say is one of the best performances in Alex Riedel. Um, Diane Blanco's name as well. Oh, is that him? I thought it was him. I remember us saying he was in Paddington too, and I can't remember who it was. And I cannot find him on the IMD right now. So, am I lying? Probably. But Maybe. from my memory of our past conversation, that's what we. You're talking about the guy in jail, right? Yes, but I can't find him on the Paddington two um, IMDb right now. 
but I can't find the guy who played that character. He's the one that doesn't like speak. He just like grumbles. This is. I'm, should I sing another song? Why you look this no, up? We got, we got, we got crazy. It. No, no, it's your right. Like, you're right. It is, it is Robbie. Robbie yeah, G. Yeah. Robbie G. Plays Simon Simeon in Alex Weedle, and he also plays. Yes. Um, let me see if I can find the name. Uh, yeah. Let me just go back. Yeah, he plays Mr. Barnes. Mr. Barnes in Padding to Do. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. Barnes is not the character I think he was, so he's a different character. I cannot pin it now. Um, either way, it's filled with these small actors that just appear in all these movies we love. Maybe there's something about the, something about their their taste. Um, let's talk about Paul King's visual use throughout the film. The two best yeah. scenes um, of all of 2018 for me. I think these were was really fine for is the picture book scene and the prison jungle. It's both of the times that Paul King uses uh, magical realism um, and to us uh, get a glimpse into what Paddington is feeling and imagining. Uh, that yes. is highly effective. Yeah, Robbie G plays Mr. Barnes, who is the like the track the truck driver for the trash oh, okay. truck driver. Who is he studying? Nah, that's that was, yeah. yeah, no, I know who you're thinking. Okay. Yes, um, so the picture book, especially. So this is when he's wanting to buy a get free on Lucy, um, and another great British actor and um, Harry Potter alumnus, um, Jim Broadbent, Jim Broadbent as the um, like antique store owner, um, you know, shows him this picture book, and then and, and Paul King doesn't just show us the book, but it comes to life as paint. It just like appears within the pages, so it shows us London, but all in like a three-dimensional paper format, like as a picture book that he's walking through, and it's one just extremely lovely designed and incredibly imagined. Uh, but also between the use of the score and the use of, you know, just where Paddington's mind is at, of you can tell that he's just one in love with this book, but but also in love with the idea of what this can bring to Aunt Lucy. That it, it's not just coming to life on screen, but in his head, it's coming to life. So he can feel like Aunt Lucy's really going to see what it's like. It's just a super warm moment. Um, but the idea that Paul King uses to make the like internal emotions of uh, of a painting is into these magical realist moments it, it is stunning to me and just beautiful i love lucy and i love aunt lucy in that scene where she's walking and she's like what a nice pigeon yeah what a nice bus yeah it's very much like ties into the fact that like very she's part of the reason that paddington is the way he is that like her as a person and uncle oh what's his name i'm blank on this Pastuzo. uncle bear uh, michael gambon also harry potter yeah um, yeah like every british movie has at least five on harry potter actors well. well it's be well it makes sense because harry potter movies are filled with like long-term classically trained british actors and this movie also a has a shame that sally hawkins never got in a harry potter movie i i feel like that's always a missed opportunity Dude, no, she no. should have been Trelawney. She would have been a better Trelawney. Oh, disagree. Emma Thompson kills it as Trelawney. No, she's not. She's good. so good Everybody. at that role. To me, it's always Emma Thompson just being weird. I don't like. Absolutely. Let's not fight about this because right. I, I, I don't know if Sally. I don't know if Sally <laughs> Hawkins was. I don't know if Sally Hawkins was. Her career no. sort of not doesn't get going. 
I think the thing, I think the difference between her and a lot of people that do end up in the friendships, and we'll dodge this stuff, is that the other people were more established by that point. One thing you see with the the Imelda Stauntons and the Michael Campbells is they had, you know, 20 years of a career oh, at the point. Imelda Stauntons, awesome and painted, so we're now in four. She's Aunt Lucy. Yes, correct. Um, yes, we've got a lot of them. Um, Wait, five! We didn't even say Julie Walters. There, there's our five. So it's limited law of fives. True. Five and you've also got, like, you've got... Um, Doctor Who people, you've got James Bond people, you've got like it's like all the all the different British uh, franchises are all kind of coming together in this film. Um, yeah, I just I love the way they use um, Lucy in that scene. It's it's totally brilliant, and because you don't have to do that scene for the movie to work, but the fact that Paul King is like, we're going to do these magical realism scenes. They don't need to be in the movie. You could just tell a straightforward Paddington story and it would be good. But what sets this movie apart and makes it like um, really stand out is the fact that Paul King was like, I'm not only going to make a really enjoyable Paddington movie, I'm also going to like be like, this is Paddington 2 as my Citizen Kane. Like he is clearly just like, I'm going to I'm gonna take shots, I'm gonna take risks, and then he just nails all of them. No, he really shows that he cares about the work he's doing. That he does have a passion for the story. That he sees a purpose in, which it does have a great purpose of teaching empathy. Movies are not gentle like the same, or it's it's almost classical in its way of um, earnestness and, and gentleness. I, I said a way that goes back to what Fred Capra was doing. You know how people have gotten so suspicious of movies that are so you know, open with their emotions uh, um, in a way and open with his kindness that Paul King is, I feel like sees purpose of that. And, and that might maybe is one of his more touristic, you know, thematic um, through lines, I hope, you know, as he gets more opportunities outside of Paddington. So I know we were up, both upset that he's not directing Paddington 3, but I am interested in what he's able to bring. I do want him to bring in, um, I said I want him to stay in the kids' movie genre. I just find his direction so important for kids' movies because um, I think, especially the lack of gentleness in kids' movies and, and more of the hijinks and the humor and pop culture references, um, I think, are diluting the experiences and, and the lessons mm -hmm. that kids learn. But I think Paul King is very important to that genre. But I want him to see him in some more original stories and other properties and get to spread his wings a little bit and see, you know, if he fully is the real deal. Because we are judging him on one franchise at this point. Um, but just a, a distinct visual eye. Um, so, you know, studios often just want to, you know, make kids' movies as baseline as possible because people are, are going to see it anyways and they're not high critics. So to put that much creativity and what you can do with it is um, also something that's unique for him. Yeah, it is kind of amazing that um, not only for Paul King and his vision, but also for the studio to be like, yeah, we're going to let Paul King make a legitimate auteur's kids movie. And not an auteur's kids movie in a way like a Tim Burton would do it where it's just super weird and bizarre. Dark. and like He's just going dark in his brain. But like a movie where the auteurist aspect is the honest, gentle, kind of loving and beautiful like message and feel of the entire film even the even the sequences were like potentially like even the scenes where there's potential there's like tension like the tension is really pulled back on because it's clear that paul king does not want to make a movie that causes you anxiety or stress like there's a real intention to be like even the sequence are like feel that part of the hap 
part of the reason that Hugh Grant works so well in this film is that it really pulls back from the traditional kids villain. Like there's never an attempt to make him seem super sinister or threatening or dangerous. And like, he might hurt somebody. He's so goofy. Like he is doing technically bad and wrong things, but he's doing them in such a goofy manner that you as an audience, even sitting with a small child, I don't think a kid is going to be like, man, I don't want to, I'm going to be scared of the scene where Hugh Grant tries to kill Paddington. Cause that's just genuinely not something this movie wants to do. He's just, it's so purely what Paul King sees in the world. And like, he wants to make this movie the way he wants to make it. And you're right. This is, this is not a movie that gets made anymore. There are so few movies these days that are just genuinely about being kind and being nice to people and how that helps everyone else out. Like, I mean, especially with kids movies, kids movies are so, um, I don't think kids really get it when they're kids, but when you get to be an adult and you rewatch these things, you're like, how are these things this mean spirited? And we're supposed to like show them to children. Like all these movies are like, let's put down other people and let's trash others to put ourselves up. Like the messages are terrible in some of these kids movies that they want everyone to watch and which makes padding to stand out even more. It's kind of the fear of the G like you don't want the G rating. You have to be edgier. The kids are not going to want to watch you and talk about it. And um, we once again still need movies for littlest of kids too. Um, G rated movies are important. Um, but also I think we need to teach our kids that it's okay to watch whatever you get. You don't have to be cool. I guess. I don't know. Even at, as adults, you know, we need these G-rated movies. We need these movies to remind us just what it is to be nice and be called. We don't have to have something, you know, we don't have to have an edge to make something interesting or purposeful. That's not what makes a movie good. Um, as far as, com- you know, comparatives for Paul King as a director, um, you said how really not Tim Bernie is. My, my comparative has always been if Wes Anderson directed kids' movies. Um, the only difference is Wes Anderson's... Um, like stunts the charisma of actors. So if you, and Paul King does not. So it's really the visual style of Russ Anderson and connect that with the earnest, hard-earned of Frank Capra, and that's where you get Paul King. Yeah, it really does feel like one like that. I think it's also just like one thing that's become sad over the last like 10, 15, 20 years is how quality directors have just, and like even just like the idea of quality and inventiveness and trying to be unique but also like doing it at a really high standard has something that has really kind of disappeared from g and pg rated movies i mean there are not a lot of people who are like talented and know what they're doing who are working each other so often they're just like products of a studio machine put together by product right they're there but they're like there is a director for the film and they're probably not completely untalented but they're also like they're told what to do by 19 producers and the movie's designed to sell toys and to do, like, there's so much of an other purpose to this, to these movies that come out that kind of stunts their ability to be just truly brilliant. And what Paddington two has is a director who's like, I am making a Paddington two movie. This is my citizen Kane. I'm going to make this as good as possible. And I don't care if it sells toys. I don't care if it spawns a friend. Like the, the entire point of this movie is just the movie. There's no focus on, Oh, can we do a TV show on Netflix of spinoff of this? Oh, can we do a third movie? Oh, can we sell 45,000 million toys. Paddington toys? Like there's just, there's really just like a focus and like, we just want to make a wonderful story that you finish watching and you just feel really good at the end. 
And it, it really could be that because Paddington is a brand. This movie could oh, yeah. be made in the most cynical way possible. That's like, we're just going to tell the most baseline story pos um, possible way so we can sell some toys because kids are going to like whatever they're fed. We are going to put enough effort to make this sellable and get stuffed animal book combos sold at Kohl's. <laughs> Right. And like Paul King writes this movie too. So like this is like it's based this movie is based on the character of Paddington, the children's book character. Mm -hmm. But they ignore the like really lazy version of just like let's adapt a bunch of scenes from previous Paddington books. Like this is as far as I can understand a wholly original take on the character. Like this is not a story that we've seen in yeah. in the books. Like Paul King's like I'm going to write the Paddington is the character that I'm taking from literature, but then I'm going to write about him the way you would write about, you know, James Bond or Jason Bourne or like any of the other characters you would pull from literature without pulling every aspect of their story with them. But also like, I think clearly stays true to the foundational elements of who Paddington yeah. Bear is while at the same time, not boxing himself in by trying to adapt previous stories that have been told in a format that doesn't work for adaptation to the big screen. Yeah. It doesn't have the need to, to modernize it in a way. It, he had trust. Oh yeah. But what made the source material work and stay true to that because if this was made um by a big american hollywood studio you get the smurfs you get out in the chipmunks where they update it thinking they need to put kids in specific ways rather than trying to be authentic to what made it enjoyable in the first place right because if this is made by a major studio um this movie is modernized <laughs> like those and what this yeah. movie is if, is if this is made in hollywood you get painting twerking to a cardi b song Honestly, that's well, it's not. Bad. It's not even just that. It's not even <laughs> that. If you look at the films that they're as they are constructed, what you would see is way less of the Paddington just being wonderful and loving, and way more of the flooding the ceiling with the bathtub and like the hijinks and stuff. That's what you'd yeah. see more of, or even like the window washing sequence. You'd see more of that because that's what the that's what it would be. It would be like, okay, we're making a Paddington movie. I don't care if you do anything with the character; just make him have play like some some popular songs, have some cameos of people. Oh, you're going to have his friend and his friend will be voiced by somebody who's famous right now. And then I, just have a bunch of high drink and, and jokes and slapstick scenes. A lot of the reason I think Hollywood studios get so cynical in its approach is also what they think the parents are going to want is uh, is really unfair that they think you know parents need jokes that that cater to their knowledge like little inside jokes like haha that's for adults and my kids don't understand it which is such a misreading of what people want because i think what true parents would want is also good stories i mean we could still read a children's book that we read as kids and find it lovely and find meaning from it just because we are adults doesn't mean we need something different than what the kids need <laughs> We can still fall for a story that is sincere and true and lovely. This is actually a really good point, which is that in our society, we do a lot of boxing up different pieces of content, whether they be books or comics or songs or movies or TV shows into boxes by age. And the idea is that you, when you're under six, you're supposed to do these stuff. And when you're six to 10, you're supposed to do these. And when you're 11 to 15, you're supposed to do these. And when you're 16 to 20, you're supposed to do like yeah. we box ourselves up into these boxes and it's really, it's really destructive for our understanding of the greater world and our ability to just enjoy stuff. Like, you know, in your mid-20s, you should be able to go back and read a picture book and be like, 
yeah, it's not high literature. It's not Dickens, but it's a great yeah. picture book. And I should be able to enjoy that the same way I enjoy a kid's movie like Paddington 2 or There Will Be Blood. Or I should be able to enjoy a jokey, a jokey TV show the same way I should be able to, to enjoy something serious. Like the ability to understand things of different that are designed for different age groups and with different tones and tastes is really important mm -hmm. and like something we've lost. And the fact that this movie is unabashedly playing to a young audience but also is like, I trust that adults are going to be able to sit down and understand the deeper nuances of this film. And I'm going to put those nuances in there. The kids are just going to think, oh, it's like, you be nice. And Paddington has fun. And an adult might have like a real, you know, life-changing experience watching this film because yeah. we're able to understand like the true, like deeper complexities. But the fact that he makes a movie in a way that is asking you as an adult to sit down and watch this movie on the kid's level and saying, if you choose to enjoy something like a kid, you will get a greater meaning from it because you've aged rather than trying to be like, Hey, I'll throw in like five jokes where you get like some random cameo of a celebrity that, you know, but your kids don't like the fact that it's just like, I'm going to just make this movie and I'm going to, I'm going to trust that people, small children to adults are going to be able to sit down and enjoy this yeah. um, without having to cater individual components of it to them. I, I made this very evident in our, you know, Mrs. Rogers conversation as well, but I, I'm a firm believer in that sometimes the most important philosophy for people of all ages to really live their life by can sometimes just be the simplest form. Sometimes the simplest version that comes off in kids entertainment is still just as moving and powerful for us. That is in all my favorite characters and Paddington and Winnie the Pooh and Mr. Rogers, they all have something timeless, um, and ever, ever, you know, endearing to how we can be the best versions of ourselves that even as adults, we tend to forget. So even being reminded in the most simplest to understand way can just be the kick that you need to, at least for a week, um, try to improve yourself. In mind it is what to be pure. It's back to the pureness of, you know, a kid before you get um, cynical and, and torn down. But what life has to offer you, how could you return to that to that purest form that this that way the pre-represents that mr rogers represents and back to himself um so that that's why if people give adults give themselves to this movie i really feel that they can be moved and have a somewhat of a life-changing experience i'm just saying like yeah this is obvious but also i'm not following it i don't live my life this way and seeing why it is important and that that is possible that you know if we or just aware of our actions and we could make slight changes to to create a world that somehow can approximate to what Paddington's world is. Well, this is like this movie very much falls into a, a genre of film that you and me both enjoy, which is it's similar to It's a Wonderful Life. It's similar to Manchester by the Sea we just did, which is like these movies ask you to um, embrace and, you know, engage with the emotion, like with human emotion and like the roller coaster and think about like how life is supposed to be lived and you know what changes us and how an event can touch one person different than another and how that you can get caught in a trap of thinking of like of looking at situations one way without acknowledging like the positives you get too stuck in the negatives um there's so many films like this that have the ability to touch people and make them think about think deeply about their own emotions or their interactions or like feelings they've held against people or, you know, just thoughts that they've kept in their mind um, without taking a step back and acknowledging maybe that's not helpful for me. Maybe that's not helping me be the person I want to be. And in some ways, Paddington is just like a film about. Sure, you can like 
you can hold all the grudges against people if you want. Those characters exist. The judge character exists for a reason. Like he clearly holds all these grudges. You know, Peter Capaldi's character, the night like the neighborhood watch guy, just seems mad at everyone all the time. Um, but the the movie is constantly showing you that if you're just willing to engage with the happiness that Paddington brings into your life, that it can change you. And suddenly you're you go from a guy sitting in a darkened room to a guy waking up next to the woman that you used that was out your window that you know there's all these really small like changes that it, you can you can um fulfill if you just you know are willing to engage with the film um that's what the characters do and that's i think what an audience member can do as well yeah i i and thinking as a a you know pop culture society the you know late aughts and early 2010s got so captured and engaged with the anti-hero, you know, especially through television with Breaking Bad and Mad Men, that, that that was like the stories that people want to say. And we saw what our what our society has led to um in the 2010s. I, I, I think sometimes you need that full 180 flip. So you know, having putting them what we put on the artistic pedestal, I think it is time for us to maybe revert a little bit away from the anti-hero heroes and let, let's really raise the movies that are just like the purest form of heroes the complete opposite of it, the people, you know, being at their best rather than us being interested in people being at their worst. Yeah. Or just like, or just reclaiming the idea that it is exciting and interesting and wonderful to watch a film where somebody is trying to do the right things for the right reasons. Um, and that that is just as valid or even more valid than a story where somebody is out for revenge and trying to burn the world down. Like, it, we don't have to like we can you know you can watch the anti-hero movies that's fine but also like we don't have to become a society that puts one of those way above the other like those things can both exist in the world um and yeah, in fact i think all well, the others is kids movies when something is so pure and sincere it's a kid's movie not for me you have to have the hardcore rated all right i need my superheroes to have swear words and fucking bloodiness <laughs> just to, for it to seem like it's for me why it isn't Paddington 2 is a really weird kind of like pushback on this entire trend that you see of movies need to get darker movies need to get harder movies need to get more violent you know this is like the horror movies all becoming um the going from you know scares and yeah there's violence in them but then they get really dark and violent and bloody in the 2000s and the 2010s and then like action movies go from like yeah. you can have fun buddy cop action movies to like every movie has to be the raid and then you can go from like superheroes can be you know goofy looking x-men guys to like oh now every movie has to be hardcore and you know murder and yeah. like you know they like a we really pushed this the envelope on all of our media being like really hardcore and um i think paddington 2 is like a really good pushback and being like hey look other things exist in the world like you can do a really great movie that's just about empathy and love and wanting to make everyone's life better and that can be um totally valid in a world that is seemingly obsessed with everything needs yeah. to be more hardcore not just hardcore, but I think there's an urge to want our characters to be more like us, that are more gray. We need our superheroes to have flaws like we do, rather than sometimes looking to have the opposite when it's we should be more like them. Like, what can we do to be like the heroes that we look up to? So, Jack, you have to have that role model for us to aspire to rather than bring them down to us because you can never amount to well, it's like, like the idea that, like, well, we can't have Christopher E. Superman anymore. Like, the idea of, like, Superman actually being the best of us. I can never be like Superman, so let's make Superman, you know. Yeah. 
Right. It's just so weird because like the, the concept of Superman, like the Superman concept is a thing in political science, like the idea that we want. Um, and interesting enough, the same time that we lost this interest in Superman being the best of as a person is kind of a time that if you look at politics, we kind of lost the I, the Superman concept from our politics of wanting our politicians to be the people who pushed our best urges rather than indulged our worst urges. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, Paddington too can really play into the discussion of so many things that are completely unrelated to the film, but also totally connected to what the film means and the time it came out. Yeah. Final thoughts on if you agree. <laughs> I agree. I, it's it's weird, like how melancholy I get about this movie that's so lovely because I'm just starting to be sad about the lack of it. But it really should be just parents teach us. I should fear that there is people walking, and you know the writers that I think do have sincere optimism. And, and what humankind can be. So, so as I learned from Paddington, I got to turn off the negative part of my mind that, that is worrisome Absolutely. about the worst, you know, parts of humans, and turn off the positive look, and then just take it in a personal sense. What can I do to be better? I'm not going to worry about what the rest of society and culture is. You know, I'm responsible for myself. How can I be more like Paddington and then hope that you know people can follow? And um, tomorrow, I'll do my best to live like Paddington. After that, I'll probably forget, but I'll, I'll still do my best. But it is really like the Paddington idea is not the idea of if I'm nice to people, if I'm kind, what is the, the Aunt Lucy line? If you're kind and nice, the world will be right. The idea is, is not based on the idea that if Paddington is nice, then suddenly all the problems of the world will end. No. The idea is that if I am nice and polite and kind to other people around me, then maybe that will have a small impact on their days and they will have a small impact on others. And it's not the huge colossal changes that everyone wants to see, you know, oh, let's fix society in 30 seconds. Like, no, that's not how it works. What works is if you're you do one nice thing and then so that person feels better about themselves because you did the nice thing. And then, you know, then somebody else do nice things for you. And I want to bring Gary up from Peru for you. That is the real message of the story. If you're nice to people, they will try to bring your aunt from um, the jungles of Peru. Yes. I, I, I didn't express enough when we were talking about, but I knew how remarkable it is that a scene of two animated bears hugging can be so emotionally effective is amazing. That you can like, feel the warmth of that hug, and that hug does not exist in any reality. Well, I mean, this is actually something that I've, I'm glad you mentioned because I almost forgot to talk about, which is that oh my god the cgi in this movie is amazing paddington looks so mm -hmm. real all the time he fits into all the environments he looks like there's a real bear there and he's like yeah of course they're walking around with a bear of course they're like talking to a bear like i don't know i don't think this movie was like crazy high budget it's always interesting when you see this sometimes where like movies that are not super high budget will have like really amazing visual effects because they're just in some ways i think that um having less money actually makes your visual effects better because it forces you to think about how you use them and you can't just do an entire scene of cgi effects like they have to be specifically specific and targeted and have to think about it but my god they do such a good job even when it's like the first scene and it's you know lucy and pastuzo saving paddington to the final scene like it's just it makes you truly it, it takes you into the movie it brings you to the childlike wonder of actually thinking there's a bear on screen with his family or hanging out with his prison friends or like you know it's just there's something wonderful about the way they do it that really does let you break um you know as an adult you watch these kids and you're like oh they're like there's a cgi character again like it really lets you break down the um 
the barrier of like what's in front of you and you really get sucked into a story where like a bear is walking around with his family trying to just be nice to everyone and buy a pop-up book for his aunt. Yeah. I want this pop-up book. Pens it look amazing. It looks amazing. Next birthday month, do we do a commentary for Paddington 2? Yes. And Paddington 1. We'll do both. <laughs> do both. It's short. It's it's still less than Justice League. It's still less than Justice League. That's true. <laughs> oh, this movie is such a joy. It really is. Like I, I feel like we've talked about it, and I simultaneously cannot say enough. Um, yeah. just, and like so we can good. turn this on as soon as we're done. We both just watched it in the past 24 hours. It is legitimately one of those movies that you can finish, walk away for 30 yeah. seconds, and like, you know what? I want to watch a scene from Paddington again. It's just like it yeah. has that ability to like draw you back in like the second you walk away from it, which is, you know, yeah. really impressive and not something you see with a lot of films. And it's a handful of movies I have reserved for me to be able to experience it with my son first when he's really able to understand the movie. Right now we watch stuff, but he doesn't, like he watched half of this with me, but he doesn't fully know what's going on. He'll know if there's a bird on screen and if people clap, and that's like the most awareness that he has. Um, yeah. But my mom loves to watch movies with him as well, so I just like, you can't watch Paddington 2, right? Like I need to have this as a shared experience. Way the Pooh is one of those for me. The ones I really want to help carve his philosophy on what it means to grow up and be part of life. Yeah. I mean, I totally get that because this is like such a special film. Um, I feel yeah. like everyone who watches this and loves it, like it becomes special to that individual because that's just the way Paddington is. Like he's just special to everyone who's experienced this. Um, you know, it's just it's just joy. Um, David Orlick, the film critic for IndieWire, coined the term nice core cinema. Um, he wrote an article about it after this came out that I remember reading. We talked about he's just like, it's just wonderful to see stuff that's just about yeah. being nice. Like that seems like that seems like such a simple topic uh, uh, for a film to tackle, but also something that is so lacking from most film. Um, just like the idea that like, look, this guy just wants to be nice to everyone. Like, but not in like a goofy like he's an idiot way. Just like a genuine, wonderful like he just wants to be nice to others because that's the way he believes that you should act towards the rest of the world. And it was done in a way where it seems like everyone who's part of it, every actor, the director, the filmmakers all fully believe in it. Like they believe in this philosophy. And all it. Um, I do want to say it's like a specialty of ours because this could be the third movie now that we have done that can qualify under nice core with Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with I Think It's a Wonderful Life. Um, for sure. So we got we to keep up this theme every now and then. We got to throw a nice, nice core movie. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts on the film, Zach? No, I love it. I love life. Um, be kind to each other. Just quoted, uh, you know, Crane Spot in there. Slightly different film. Not exactly nice. <laughs> also great. Um, not intentional. I have no idea what the quote is you're talking about. Live life is a quote from the, the famous okay. monologue by Ewan McGregor. Yeah, I love actually. life. Oh, I'm bad. I'm bad at hearing. I, um, you're not bad. Yeah, I'm a mumbler. This film is wonderful. It's an absolute joy. Everyone should watch it. You should watch it if you're a little kid. You should watch it if you're a grandparent. You should watch it if you are 100 years old. If you literally exist on the earth, I think you would enjoy Paddington 2. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about Paddington 2 is you can watch Paddington 1. It's also pretty good. It's really good. It's just not as good as this one. But you can also just watch Paddington 2 because it's a joy. And you're really like the films are sort of connected, but not super connected, which is kind of the joy of uh, cinema. And you're like, yeah, they really didn't design these movies to have a sequel. They didn't have like the hook in the way that you typically do.
Zach is like, I don't know what you're looking at now. Oh, I'm looking at the Daddy Cool lyrics again, getting ready. Okay. Um, thank you, folks, for <laughs> listening to our a discussion of Paddington 2. Uh, this commands, this ends um, our month on uh, Lucas and Zach movies. Um, Zach and I just both had birthdays within the last four days. So, um, yeah. Yay, happy birthday to happy us. Birthday to us. We are so old. We're so old. Paddington will be nice to us and bring us a wheelchair. Um, Because we're going to need it soon because we're just basically done. Um, We will be coming back. This is the end of this month. We will have some Oscars content coming up somewhere in here. Um, So get ready for that. And then in May, we're coming back and we're doing uh, an entire month on the legendary... um, Golden Age actress Barbara Stanwyck, um, that yeah. we are both weirdly super excited to do. This is some of my favorite movies. Yeah, so we're gonna do that. We're gonna have some Oscars. I, I do want to just encourage everyone who may may um, not be up for the classic films as much. Um, this isn't, and Barbara Stanwyck seems like we're doing an out of nowhere actress, like we're not doing Catherine Pepper or someone. But these are really. Not just the highest, but some of the best movies ever. Like the, the list that we have on stream are, you know, objectively well appreciated, great movies. So I, I hope everyone gives it the time of day and doesn't, you know, just rub it off as something that I could be interested in. I think it's absolutely be very interesting conversations to get. She's super charming. She's really fun to watch on screen. She's really engaging. I think everyone will enjoy it. We also, sometime in May, will have a QA for our 50th episode. So if you have questions, our email and our Twitter are in the description. You can send us questions. We were looking to curate them for that episode so we can answer the questions. Um, we would prefer nothing like super shallow film stuff, like asking what our favorite Star Wars is, is uh, really yeah. not very interesting. Um, if open-ended you have question, questions. Open-ended, deeper questions, more interesting stuff. Um, ask us a question that's not about, you know, movies, you know, just anything that, that we think is interesting that we'll want to answer. So. Um, yeah, hit us up with that. Um, with that being said, thank you, Zach. I'm Lucas. Uh, we will we will see you sometime in the future. Enjoy. Have a good night. Happy birthday to Lucas. Happy birthday to Zach. Happy birthday, Daddy Cool. <laughs> Happy birthday to us.